Hello and welcome. I'm Melissa Studdard and I'm your host for tonight's episode of Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we'd love for you to also join our global online community at Teferit's website. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting their own, you can subscribe to the journal and enjoy beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. My guests this evening are John Tribble and Allison Joseph. John Tribble is the managing editor of Crab Orchard Review and the series editor of the Crab Orchard series in poetry published by Southern Illinois University Press. He is the recipient of a 2003 Artist Fellowship Award in Poetry from the Illinois Arts Council, and his poems have appeared in many journals and anthologies, including Plowshares, Poetry, Crazy Horse, and Quarterly West. As well, his work was selected as winner of the Campbell Corner Poetry Prize from Sarah Lawrence College. Tribble teaches creative writing and literature and directs undergraduate and graduate students in internships and independent study in editing and literary publishing for the Department of English at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Allison Joseph is the author of the books What Keeps Us Here, Soul Train, in every theme, imitation of life, and worldly pleasures. Her honors include the John C. Zacharis First Book Prize, fellowships from the Breadloaf and Sewanee Writers Conferences, and an Illinois Arts Council Fellowship in Poetry. She is editor and poetry editor of Crab Orchard Review and director of the Young Writers Workshop, an annual summer residential creative writing workshop for high school writers. As well, she is director of the Southern Illinois University Carbondale MFA program in creative writing, where she holds the Judge Williams Holmes Cook Endowed Professorship. Together, Tribble and Joseph form one of the greatest and most beloved duos of the American poetry scene. Ooh, we're beloved. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It's all true. You're just beloved by me and millions and billions of other people, so I'm so grateful that you took the time to, to talk with me tonight. Well, we're very pleasure. happy to be here. Our pleasure. Thank, thank you. Well, Allison, my first question is for you about John, and um, I know that John has just been an unflagging advocate for other people's creative work, and mm-hmm. that over the past year or so, you've been urging him to focus more on his own poetry. That so is correct. I will, yay! <laughs> so I wanted to see if you could tell us some of the things that, that you love about his poems and what the world has to look forward to now that he's writing more. Well, he's always been writing. This is the thing that most people don't realize. John writes all the time, and it's really interesting the different ways that the two of us write. He'll write in his head. So when he comes actually to get time to sit down at the computer and actually type something up, a poem of his is narrowly done, usually. Like the framework is pretty much set. Um, it's always been that way. So, And um, one of the advantages of 
publications being online more is that it's easier and simpler for someone like John, who has a limited amount, limited amount of time, to send work out. So his work has been appearing in a lot of online, John, online uh, venues, but mm-hmm. I always knew the whole situation with his book being published was funny because I was posting some status to my Facebook page saying, you people out there, you don't even know this gentleman has so much work and I get the honor of reading it. And Amy Kay saw that status and and asked John to send one of his collections, of which there are several. Uh, So he's Mm -hmm. always writing. He's always thinking about writing. Um, He's always telling stories. John's a Southerner. He has roots in Arkansas and Alabama. And if you know Southern people, they all tell stories. And John's (laughs) part of that tradition of of telling stories, of investigating where people come from and what the backstory is. So uh, the book that's going to be coming out, Natural State, is very much grounded in the state of Arkansas. And it's a book about family and recollection and, and things that have gone by the wayside if people don't notice them anymore. But it's it's I'm extremely happy and, and proud, but I knew all along, you know, I just wanted to nudge these things into existence a little bit more. <laughs> They've always existed. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm, that's wonderful. It's really fascinating what you said about the process, too, mm-hmm. because you said that he, he basically, John, you, you have it in your head, right? And you just I do, I do. put it on paper. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, uh, I've, that's I've kept po- I've kept poems in my head for more than a decade. So I'll have a line and I'll be adding to it. And uh, uh, when it's the time for me to to put it down, I I manage to get it down pretty pretty much close to in whole. I do a lot of a lot of small revision, a lot of choices on individual words, but. Um, when the poems come, they they tend to come out pretty quickly because I've been thinking on them for um, sometimes really a hundred hours or more. I mean, so so I've I've spent the time with them, but I I don't get the time from uh, some of the other things that I do that I'd like to just be writing all the time. But uh, but right. I mean, no one does. <laughs> No, no. It's fascinating, though. I I heard, um, I think it was Ocean Wong in an interview, or or I guess I read the interview, and he said the same thing, that he sort of carries a poem around with him, and then at some point he just sits down and writes it down, which is is very different from how I do it. And I'm I'm interested to hear how you do it as well, Allison, because you said your process is different from mine. Oh, I'm a mess. I've always got notebooks and scraps, and sometimes I can't remember where I've left a poem. It's awful. <laughs> I mean, I really do need to clean up my act because I have I have things that I know that I've written, and I I write in longhand exclusively before I go to. I I very rarely will start on the computer with a poem. Um, John, since he carries so much in that brain of his, <laughs> he can sit down and, and know 20 lines, 30 lines, how long a poem's going to be. I'm always uh, sort of shuffling papers. And, and I also, um, 
I'm not vain about a lot of things, but I'm vain about my own handwriting. I think it's absolutely gorgeous, so I want to spend as much time with it as I can. <laughs> so everything gets oh, out you have to You have to post it somewhere. <laughs> Is it somewhere online where we can look at it? There's actually, it? actually a picture of my, one of my doodles that just says, Allison loves John. Uh, you can very clearly oh. see it's a woman in love with her, her own handwriting. Oh, how beautiful. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to Google that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, John, I'm wondering when you carry your poem around in your head, um, is it it like a sound in your head, like you kind of hear the lines, or do you actually see what it looks like on the page? Um, I think it's it's actually more sound than it is visual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll just, I'll start the lines and and continue to move them around and and have as many as uh usually it's usually about 40 to 50 that I'll know that I'm ready to write the poem but um uh some longer things I've actually sat down with and and known starting out that I was going to be working out 100 125 150 lines so um, it just wow, depends on what it is, particularly when they're very much narrative forms and I know where they're going. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one thing I remember seeing in the interview with you that was in, um, I'm trying to remember the name, of, was it South Story? Did you read that? Uh, Story, Story South. Story South. Story yeah. South. Okay. Yeah, that was a great, great interview. You both did a, a wonderful job with that. Um, but you said, I think it was in that interview, that you, um, the, <laughs> the writing sort of comes to you and starts trying to, you know, the lines start coming into your head when you're so busy working on something else that it seems kind of inevitable that this happens. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about that because I know the same thing happens with me. Um, is it something that you're working on usually that's inspiring to you and that's why lines come to you, or is it just that, that you can't, <laughs> you know, at that moment? Do you I think? think it's more that I can't because it could happen as much as working on editing a book that I'd very much enjoy doing um, versus um, working on a grant, which <laughs> is never very much fun, but has to be no. done. Um and so I I will just have that language start to come to me and I'll I'll keep it in a place in my head that I can kind of go back to in the little times in between and and be thinking of it. Um it is an interesting winnowing process. I I don't think I've lost any poems this way, but I also kind of accept that if I lose them, maybe I shouldn't have written them anyway. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so brave. (laughs) I feel like I have to write every little scrap down. And, you know, in fact, I woke up one morning and I had um, taken like a hair clip and clipped a piece of paper to my lamp that said something like splendor, um, cat, sunshine, Brazil nuts. It was like this mm-hmm. list of things that I thought mm-hmm. I was going to make a poem out of, and I just I woke myself up to write it down. It was so funny. Um, so, Allison, I wanted to ask you also one more question about your process. So you write in, in longhand, beautiful, mm-hmm. exquisite longhand, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which I can't wait to see. Um, do you also have, like, 
a certain place that, that you, like, is there a certain kind of journal or paper? Um, I do that like you have notebooks. To write? I, okay. I will. I will. And they don't have to necessarily be fancy notebooks, although I do enjoy a fancy notebook. Or I, mm-hmm. if it's too fancy, I can't. I can't go there. I feel guilty. Like if it's a leather one. <laughs> Oh, oh my but, gosh, I know what you mean. I um <laughs> I am very much a Staples or Office Depot or Office Max, whatever you have. <laughs> I love stationery. I love I mean, I wrote a poem called Elegy for the Personal Letter. So, you know, I love oh, those right. forms of communication that uh, a lot of us have sort of jettisoned, but I still like the a very act of picking up a pen and um and I write a lot when I travel, so there's no particular place. Like, I'm very likely to, if I'm traveling without John and I'm going to, say, Chicago and I'm taking the train, I'm very likely to get on the train at 7.30 in the morning, and by the time I get off in Chicago at 1, I'll have a poem drafted or maybe several because that kind of extended time where nobody knows who you are and can ask you for anything just beckons and and it seems like a wonderful opportunity. Mm, that's great. <laughs> I can't write on planes. Some... I can't write on planes because planes are too uncomfortable. Uh, I can write on trains well, I can understand you, that. You get an opportunity to sort of spread out a little bit more and uh, mm-hmm. but on a plane you're just sort of I usually get somehow get smashed in the middle in the middle. Mhm. <laughs> I know, I know. It's hard. And you feel like everybody is sort of breathing onto your computer right. and reading right. you write. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you at some point transfer it to the computer? I do. Um, you do? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought you must, unless you had some really nice graduate student who was helping out with that. <laughs> no, but that's an idea. <laughs> How'd you like I to type up all my things for me? <laughs> <laughs> I have another idea for you too. I, I keep getting really beautiful journals as gifts from people, and mm-hmm. um, I, I feel the same thing as you. Like I don't want to write anything in it, so I started putting quotes that I love by other people in those. That's journals. a great idea. That's a great <laughs> yeah, idea. Yeah, and now I have those all collected together. So um, I wanted to see if you two could go ahead and each read a poem. And um, John, would you read your poem, The Divine, which I love? All right. Is there this anything was... that you want us to know about it before you start? Um, mainly, it uh, it is a poem for Allison. Oh. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. and it is a poem that um, I was trying to write about in the end, a single sound, which I hope comes through at the end of the poem. Um, and uh, I suppose for those who don't know, um, Sarah Vaughn, the jazz singer, uh, was often referred to as the divine. So, mm. the divine. I cannot sing, but I can listen. The voice of notes reaching and stretching, testing the muscles of what sound can be, should be, if we were only ear, only hearing clear and transcending the clamor of city streets 
rough, malodorous push and shove. The traffic of life's be there should have been yesterday, tomorrow morning. But if the night were the warmest cave, the primal blanket to layer and comfort our tired feet, to feed a flame of shadow and light together, and pure, yes, pure tone would be the echo and resonance, the never-ending claim to live in the lasting growl and coo of her voice as my funny valentine fades and never disappears, as the final note possesses Sarah Vaughan, possesses us, documents the sound we should define as pain, as regret, as love and loss, as human. Oh, oh. beautiful. <laughs> you know, I, one of the things I love just right off the bat is I cannot sing, but I can listen. And then you go on to basically sing. <laughs> you know, it's very, very lyric and beautiful. Um, so funny. Um, also, the the way that you use that verb possessed at the end is just so incredibly compelling. <laughs> you know? Well, thank you. Yeah, it it if you have never heard uh Sarah Vaughan sing funny my funny Valentine, um you can go online and find it and um uh and in every case that she does, she makes that final note basically everything. Mm-hmm. Um and so that was what I hoped to get at in this poem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really comes across, and also just that ending of human. It's like everything, <laughs> you know that that is making it everything. So, wow, what a beautiful poem. Okay, um, Allison, would you read um, variation on a line from Lorca? Mm-hmm. And let me find it, and I will read it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the poems, and I also love the the original Lorca poem. It's one of my favorite poems. Well, what I've been doing um, lately is immersing myself in world poetry because uh, I know so much about contemporary American poetry, but I never took a course in learning who the great masters around the world were. So I decided that um, all the used bookstores online were going to furnish me with all the Lorca and Neruda <laughs> and Akhmatova and all of those people that I needed to. And it's I know that a lot of the times I'm reading translations, but the poems affect me in a different way than the poems that I'm re- usually surrounded by. So that mm-hmm. has been a real spark to my own creativity to know that uh, no, uh, Lorca is not going to friend me. <laughs> I don't have to worry about what he's going to say on Twitter. Uh, just knowing that poetry lasts longer than so many of the things that we're currently surrounded by and so many things that have buzz. So this is called Variation on a Line from Lorca. If I am dying, leave the back door open. Let the neighborhood strays wear their fur around each ankle, claws unhidden. Let my house collapse, grow lush in neglect. 
trees and bushes thick, tangled as the bramble of my midnight hair, damaged as my terrified legs. When the sun rises, I'll know the calm breath God never sent, know the missing digits of his last known address, wrecked by the soil of all his unspeakable graves. Wow. That just kind wow. of gives you chills. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amazing. I, I think um, reading, so, indulging in these, these poets has helped me not sound like me because after a while you you know the kinds of things that you're going to write. And mm-hmm. this is something my students always talk about. It's like, if I read so many poets, won't I be influenced? And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what you want. You want a multitude, <laughs> a multitude of voices impinging on what you consider your characteristic voice. I think, I think you want that. I think you want to sound like yourself, but also not like yourself. Well, you know, I mean, that's true, and it, it, there's a layer of richness and complexity here that that comes in from a new voice, and that, that comes in all these poems from new voices. But it still sounds like you in the most yeah, wonderful way. Yeah, it's always going to sound like you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, they're just the the way that that you phrase things in here, the very very specific details that you've included. I mean, it's totally mm-hmm. Allison Joseph. So. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, John so, knows what the the falling apart house really means. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. He knows it's not just a, a merely poetic hyperbole. Oh, <laughs> uh, so we're not talking about a dilapidated house. We're talking about books everywhere and yeah, yeah. yeah. We d- we decorate an early book <laughs> and late book and in between oh books. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's hysterical. (laughs) Um, Well, Allison, I wanted to ask you in your, well, actually this question is for both of you, but what made me think of it is your your Garrett Award acceptance speech. Mm -hmm. You said in that speech that at Kenyon College you learned about helping other writers. And I think that's kind of a wonderful and unusual statement because I haven't really heard anyone else make a statement like that about their MFA program. So, and John, I went through the same program. So, I'm just wondering, you know, what is it that Kenyon did that, that imparted this to you? Well, Kenyon is a very small, private liberal arts college located in central Ohio. I was a young African-American woman of Caribbean descent who grew up in New York who went to public school. So there was an immediate disconnect there, even though I had gotten a scholarship and I was welcome to campus. But it's the kind of place, it's the kind of college experience, and you look at the brochures, and I don't know if anyone here has ever been there other than John, it's gorgeous. It sort of looks like an idyllic little academic village. Um, But one of the things that it taught me is that if you want something to happen, You have to create it because you're kind of on your own. There aren't any other colleges really near. You have your faculty there who do a lot with the students, and you also have your fellow students. So it's sort of liberal arts on steroids. And I knew that I had to make whatever I wanted to happen there 
happen. And that's something I've sort of carried with me wherever I've been, whether I've been at a visitor at a school or here at SIU where we've been for over 20 years, that the things that we wanted to have happen, uh, Crab Orchard Review and uh, Young Writers and all the other things that we've done, both on campus and outside of campus, we had to make them happen. Um, mm-hmm. No one was going to. And and um, I think it's, personally, I think it's part of the responsibility of being a creative person that you let some of it out back into the world, not just in the form of what you write, but the things that you do. And not everyone agrees with that. And not everyone is capable of that. You know, it, you have right. to have have to have um, a lot of resources, both inner resources and outer resources, to do some of the things that we do. And uh, and sometimes it can get discouraging. And sometimes it can feel like, ah, oh, this is so much. And John can concur on this. John, for many years. Um, worked in movie theaters, so he knows how to handle the general public better than I do. (laughs) But, you know, just because you do something that you think is going to help someone um, in the literary world doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be appreciated or that you're going to be loved for it. So you have to do these things knowing that there's a risk that someone may not be appreciative even if you feel that they should be. Wow. That, well, yeah, you, that is true. And uh, um, where we actually met was in Bloomington, Indiana, at yeah, Indiana University. Of, yeah, where and, else does a girl from the Bronx meet a guy from Little Rock, Arkansas? Of course, Bloomington, that's Indiana. True. Yeah, sure. So, but, but even there, I mean, the that we both had the opportunity um, over a period of four years um uh, I was the associate editor and then editor of Indiana Review, and I was followed by Allison being the associate editor and editor of Indiana Review. And so we were able to kind of get a sense of how how you could put, a get, put together a publication, um, how you could keep it going, how you could direct um, things about changing it. Um, uh, for both of us, um, a lo- one of the m- most important things, I think, when we were working on that magazine and, of course, with Crab Orchard Review was that the magazines represent the the diverse voices that are American writing. And, um, and to do that with Indiana Review, we really had to uh, do some things that were a little different. Um, we used guest editors because uh, Indiana Review had been pretty Midwestern and very, very homogenous in its uh, in what was what it had been publishing. And so to shake it up some, I mean, one of the things that I did was I got Michael S. Harper to guest edit a section, and um, mm. and that that meant it changed and and the thing that you always know when you want um want to to realize the possibilities of the diversity of so many voices in in our american scene and our world scene is the thing you've got to do is publish people i mm-hmm. that you can say all you want about diversity but if you're not publishing people um they're going to make their own, draw their own conclusions and um so all you have to do is make sure you're publishing great work and other great work will follow. 
Wow. Well, I know one of the things I love about what y'all have done with the Crab Orchard Review is that you have these great thematic issues and, you know, you focus on things like region and race Mm -hmm. and different aspects of identity. And, um, you know, with what you're talking about, about, um, you know, American poetry, and I I know y'all have also done some um, Irish and Mm -hmm. African not completely American, but but what have you sort of discovered about contemporary poetry by running these specialized issues? We discovered that poets like to write about apples and pomegranates. <laughs> yes, when we did our food issue, that was true. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I'm, we did our music issue, we discovered that a lot of writers had been tortured by childhood piano lessons. Indeed, indeed. Um, no, it's it's funny how we ended up with that, though, is that the reasons that that happened um, had to do with, we started Crab Orchard Review with absolutely no funding. Um, we were supposed to get funding, and it got cut off, and, and our original, our founding editor-in-chief, Richard Peterson, said, go ahead, I'll find the money. And so we started to work on it. Um, thinking, how are you going to get the money? Well, he got the money by writing everyone that he knew that disliked the people who cut off his funding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we we really did publish our first issue mainly on spite. Um, that <laughs> and but you couldn't keep doing that. Um, and so we were fortunate enough that the American Conference for Irish Studies was coming to our university, and the um, the person who was bringing them, uh, Dr. Charles Fanning, um, offered to pay for our second issue if we would do an issue on Irish and Irish-American writing. And we said, sure, I mean, that will be interesting mm-hmm. to us. Um, so we did that, and it's because of that that we ended up with this general issue, special issue kind of split. Um, what we did following that was we did issues on African, African-American, and Afro-Caribbean writing as the next special issue, Asian, Asian-American writing, the following one, writing of and from the Americas. Because, again, we were, we were a Midwestern magazine starting out, and we wanted to let people know, yes, we want to publish all sorts of work from all sorts of places. Um, and the best way to do that was to publish it. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's and wonderful. So, so everything we've done since, it's it's funny that there are people who have made a point of saying that we're, we intend to be a multicultural magazine. Well, we intend to be an American literary magazine, and America is multicultural. So mm-hmm. it just kind mm-hmm. of follows um, that... Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the best way to do it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it has been, when we've done these issues of region or of thematic things on food or music or um, immigration, I mean, they've just been informed by the fact that people know that if they'll send us good work, we'll publish it. And, and, um, and we've been blessed by a lot of great writers giving us an opportunity to to publish their work over the years. Mm-hmm. That's terrific, especially when they write about apples. 
Mrs. Palmer. Yes. <laughs> Um, John, I also wanted to compliment you on your work with the Crab Orchard series and poetry. I think you've made phenomenal selections with that, and it seems also like you've formed some really supportive and nurturing relationships with that. And I just I wanted to tell you, I, I know that they've had a lot of success and that that must be really rewarding for you, too. And um, I would love to hear if there are any kind of standout experiences you've had with someone who you've been working with through the whole process on a book. Oh, they've, they have all been really terrific. But um, I would say, um, well, one of the things that really stands out to me are the, um, the times that I get to make the call to the people um, when... I'm telling them that we've taken their books, and um, oh. there have been some there have been some wonderful wonderful um, memories of that. I I won't say any names, but we actually had one person who her response um, um, immediately was, um, "I'm eating a cinnamon toast crunch," <laughs> and, and I said to her, "Cereal is a good thing," and she said, "Yes, it is." And um, I've had had someone who was crossing the uh, the Bay Bridge when uh, when she she had to answer when she saw it was me, and I said, "We'll talk later. Get off the road." So so, um, so those have been been things that have been great. And again, the experience of just working with different people on their books has has been terrific overall. I um, and every every one of them is sort of a unique thing. Mhm, mhm, that's great. And I I love I just love the way you support your authors. I mean, I've been reading articles that you've written about Jake Adam York, and just um, just I mean, it's just wonderful the uh, the way that you get so intensely involved. I I don't think that necessarily a common thing with editors, and I'm not talking about my own editors. My own editors have been incredible, but um, it's just, it seems unusual to me for someone to, to care as much as you seem to, both of you. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Allison, I wanted to ask you also sort of a question about form um, in your most recent collection, My Father's Kite. Mm-hmm. You write about really intimate, raw, compelling subject matter, and you write about it in these fixed forms and Mm -hmm. uh, sonnets and villanelles and pantoons. And I just kind of wanted to talk to you about how that arose. I mean, did you know in advance that you wanted to pour those poems into that kind of form, or Mm -hmm. did it it find you? (laughs) I didn't know I was going to write a sonnet sequence about my father. Didn't know. I had tried, after he passed away, to write about losing him, and um, I was stunned to find out that I couldn't write my normal one-and-a-half-page sort of memory narrative poem that I'd written. I'd written about my mother's death in my first book. That seemed, why not just go back to that? And it was just not possible So I happened to be actually back at Kenyon. I was teaching in the Kenyon Review Summer Writers Workshop, and I was in between conferences with people, and a line came to me. And the line was, 
his credit cards were in a plastic case. And I noticed that the line had 10 syllables. And I said, hmm, 13 more and I'm done. Hmm. I only (laughs) intended to write one sonnet. I knew enough about sonnets from having taught them that I knew I could contain the emotion of that moment. That moment referred to when my father passed away, he was alone. He was alone in his own house. Um, So the authorities came and took anything out of the house that would be perceived valuable so that when my sister and I and my my uncle came, we had to go claim his personal effects. And that's that's one of those moments in life that sort of the pain of it sort of crystallizes it in your memory forever. So that line came to me, and I knew, oh my goodness, it's a ten syllable line. I can I can work with this. So it gave me a way. Those fixed forms gave me a way to talk about that kind of grief and pain in a way that I felt I couldn't. Any I couldn't. I I didn't think I could. Once I started writing the sonnets, it really helped to sort of picture each sonnet as each scene surrounding the days of, you know, I it's like, I need a funeral sonnet or I need a sonnet. So I was writing them kind of like a fiction writer writes scenes for a story that I knew the sonnet could piece things together and also hold each individual vignette together. I don't re- necessarily recommend it <laughs> because it, it does <laughs> it take a whole... really hard. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I bought every rhyming dictionary in creation, and <laughs> and I had written a lot of rhymed poetry beforehand. It's just um, when I needed it, it was there as an avenue. And for some forms, like uh, like the pantoum is very good for making fun of something. So well, there's a pantoum in that book that makes fun of the language of the collection agency, which, of course, some... A lot of bills had accrued in, in the wake of my father's passing, so you just keep opening and opening these bills and these threatening letters, and the same language pops up. So I'm, I'm like, oh, that's going to be a pantoum. <laughs> what a great idea! <laughs> that's great. You know, I I read a um, a review of the book that I really thought was wonderful, um, and I'm sure you probably have seen this. Uh, where he was talking about how um, the like the the formality of the poems sort of mirrored the the formality of the process that you go through after someone dies. Exactly. Um, but that was a really interesting point because that's something I always talk to my students about is you know the form ma- matching content, and then here we have the pantoum too, making fun of <laughs> the language of the creditor. That's great. Um, well, John, would you tell us a little bit about your forthcoming book? Well, um, it's titled Natural State, and um, I chose that title because so many of the poems um, really draw upon my uh, childhood and adolescence and young adulthood growing up in Arkansas. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Little Rock, Arkansas, until... Oh, I think I did not leave until I was 23. So, um so it it draws upon that um the poems certainly um are a great many of them are about family, about place, 
uh, about people that I knew there, and uh, and it's uh, it's a book that um, that I'm I'm very glad is uh, is going to be coming out from Glasslire Press. That uh, I've just begun to work with them on the book, and it should be out in uh, uh, January or February. Wonderful. And speaking of great editors, you get to work with Omni K and all those wonderful people at Glasswire. Yes. They're just wonderful people, all of them. That's great. Well, I would love to hear another poem from each of you. Right. Um, Allison. Well, actually, let's start with you, John, because we were just talking about father poems, and I think you have a father poem. So. I do indeed. And, uh, and this is a, a poem that will be in the book. So, oh, so terrific. And it is simply titled, Fathers. His hands touch mine like a fly landing on my fingers. I don't know if he touches me so softly because he thinks I will break or he will break. If I move my hand to hold his, he is gone and acts as if he'd never been there. I saw him with his father before the old man withered from whiskey and cigarettes, talking about the North Alabama sun, when the old man suddenly wrapped his arms around him. My father's face twisted to be touched so closely with no chance of escape. His arms stayed frozen at his sides as if the hug had crushed them, and he stood answering his father, hands almost reaching up, but unable to pull away from his legs. I'd never try to hug him after that, or even touch his hand unless to test him, and I know he'd never fail, nor I succeed. It's so rich and complicated, <laughs> I guess, like relationships with parents are. Um, would you tell us a little bit about its its origin and also the the last few lines of the poem? They're so powerful. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it um, it's a poem that actually came out of an in class writing exercise. Um, there is a uh, terrific poem by C.K. Williams, uh, "My Mother's Lips," and. Um, in a in a undergraduate creative writing class, um, um, one of uh, my professors, uh, Ralph Burns, read that poem and asked us to write in class for about ten minutes a poem about a gesture, because the C.K. Williams poems is built around the fact that he recognizes as a teenager that his mother is saying exactly what he is saying just moments behind him mm-hmm. that she's just mouthing his speech and so so I wrote this poem now this is a poem that particularly at that time um my mother who uh, who saw this poem said um that's not your father in the poem that's no. you <laughs> She said, "That's you." And at the time, it would have been true um, that when I was I was probably fairly emotionally distant when I was, uh, say, twenty twenty one years old, um, and uh, so 
she is she is correct though the relationship with his father um who was a very kind of gruff but but kind of a bear of a man um does fit into this but um so it's complicated in terms of who's who um in terms of the poem if i'm to think of it autobiographically but i was really just focusing on that idea i had that line come to me his hands touch mine like a fly landing on my fingers and um so when i got to the end of this um i i just was following really the course of the poem um and um and it ended up with the uh, I'd never even try to hug him after that or even touch his hand unless to test him and I know he'd never fail nor I succeed um so I wanted to get back at the end of the poem to the the gesture at the, that started it and uh yes yes wow well thank you so much for sharing that um Allison, would you read to Sylvia? Yes, and let me talk a little bit about this poem before I read it. Um, I was a library latchkey kid, which means when I was growing up, um, after school, I would head to the library. And when I started writing and reading poetry, I was about 12, 13, the age where a lot of girls get infatuated by being a poet and mine just never stopped. But when you go to the the library, you'll find Langston Hughes, you'll find, and you'll find Sylvia Plath. Um, and for some people, Sylvia Plath, people who don't read poetry, Plath is this sort of punchline. And in fact, I think I wrote this res- poem in response to hearing her as a punchline for a joke on a late night show. I don't remember which one it was, but it was kind of signaling to the audience, unstable, crazy poet lady. Um, And I thought back, you know, the moments, one of the great things about being a poet or being a reader of poetry is that time when you fall in love with a poet. And maybe later on you learn something of their biography or what they did to their children or whatever, but that moment where you find someone that across time or doesn't even resemble you in the superficial ways, isn't like you racially or isn't even the same gender or anything, but you find something and you go, whoa, this is my person. This person is speaking just to me. (laughs) So that was the uh, impetus behind this poem. To Sylvia, Mistress of the Miserable, the tormented girl I was loved you so. Your madness as mutable as the pages I ripped from Ariel, the bell jar. Damaged books unfit for the library. My contraband. All your sutured words hidden under my bed. Stashed like candy, like teen magazines. I liked your father rage. Anger I could never show to mine. Your militant stanzas honed and perfect as your blonde page boy. Somehow I thought you knew me, though I had no idea what your madness tasted like, that shock of electricity crawling your spine. You made it okay to ache at the fringes of feeling, 
to be haunted by a future that hadn't even started yet? Even now, a line of yours thrills as it slashes the thin skin that keeps my sanity intact. Though you are mentioned as some errant punchline, some talk show host's easy joke. I know some girl, some sad girl, is opening a book of your lines right now, and she's feeling the rigor of your exquisite pain, pangs of your gassed heart. Wow. <laughs> that really, really does convey that the vital relevance of poetry and how it connects and provides company, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow. That's beautiful. I love that both of the poems that you read are a sort of homage to to other poets, too, and mm-hmm. what their poetry has done. Well, um, Allison, I wanted to ask you also um, if, if you want to tell us just a little bit about the chronology of your books. And what I'm kind of thinking is, if someone is listening tonight who hasn't read your work before, um, where would you want them to start? Would they? Would you want them to go chronologically and start with the beginning of your books, or read the most recent one, or you know, hmm. how would you recommend they go about that? <laughs> I'm just recommending that they buy one. <laughs> well, I've published one. with I've published with university presses. I've published with independent presses. I've published with micro presses, and all of those need your money, people. So, um, some of my Books have more of a celebratory tone, like Worldly Pleasures, which came out of WordPress. Um, some have more of a critical, like a sociological or critical tone, like my one of my new chat books, uh, Trace Particles from Backbone Press. So I usually, when people ask me that question, I usually ask them, well, what are you interested in reading about? Do you want to read about love? Because I got some love poems over here. <laughs> Do you want to read about <laughs> me? me taking on all the big things like race and religion, and I can give you that. Um, But I think every poet who publishes a book uh, has to then turn around and find, oh, my God, where's my audience? Because we're so Mm -hmm. used to sitting down and writing these poems, and maybe you bring them to a workshop and 20 people see them, or maybe you do an open mic and 30 people hear them. But then when it's in book form, Oh my goodness. People can actually people who don't know me can actually pick this up. Someone who just says, "Oh, this sounds interesting," can buy it. Um, right. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I know how to say this acronym properly, so forgive there me. There is no way to say this. Had I been a smarter <laughs> woman, I would have come up with an acronym that everyone could have said. But some people I was say crops CR Robs. <laughs> Yeah, I, I always say, hey, that W is silent, but it's a uh, Creative Writers Opportunities List. And I'm Wonderful. actually... Would you tell our listeners about that a little bit? <laughs> uh, well, years ago, I would uh, photocopy things for graduate students in the program and urge them to submit. And then I started doing things online in various uh, online forums, and I discovered I could, using... Yahoo groups, I could create a 
listserv that would send information out to writers. And uh, I've been doing this. Did we figure out how many years I've been doing this in one form or another, uh, John? You started in at least um, 97 or 98. So it's been a long time. Yes. But what I do is just about every day, if I'm traveling, I try not to do this because it's too much of a hassle, but just about every day I'll find things that are of interest to poets, fiction writers, uh, non-fiction writers, and sometimes, if I can figure out whether it's legit or not, uh, writers of plays, opportunities for them to submit their work, calls for submissions, literary contests, fellowships and residencies, uh, jobs, tenure track, non-tenure track, um, writing gigs that aren't academic. Because, first of all, I'm really interested in seeing... We're all told that being a writer is impossible. We're all told, why choose being a poet or being a fiction writer or being any of these things? And I'm interested in seeing what are the ways that we can negate or refute that that impression that so many people seem to want to force on us. Oh, my goodness, you're a writer. Oh, you're going to starve. And uh, teaching here all these years, I meet with prospective students on the undergraduate level, and they're usually with a parent or two and sometimes a little brother or sister. And I have to say, you know, yeah, your your son or daughter is interested in this, and <laughs> she won't starve. She'll find a way. She'll figure it out. Uh so I'm I'm just interested that in that personally. Uh, I'm not just a I'm not just the boss of crops. I'm also a client. You know, I'll use it to goad myself <laughs> into sending work work out. Um, or yes, but it's if incredibly I, generous. It really is. It is incredibly incredibly generous what you do. And I, I get a little obsessive about it. So sometimes people are like, I got twelve messages from you today. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> well, um, it, so if somebody doesn't know about it, how do they sign up for it? Do they just Google well, it? Well, then- if they Google C-R-W-R-O-P-P-S, the first link that pops up usually is crops. Um, some other links that will pop up are people actually talking about it and how they've used it, which is a very interesting thing to see because some of the people know that I'm the person behind it and some of the people are just like, this thing comes and I don't know who's behind it and it's magic, but you should <laughs> sign up for it. And um, anyone who's Facebook friends with me will see that I regularly, as, as my status, will have some reference to it. So some people have just um, found the link that way. Um, it's kind of this almost open secret, like a lot of people know about it, but they don't know how it happens. <laughs> because I've well, always... I've always <laughs> well, I've always thought doing it for free, there are, there are paid services that will do this, and they'll do it in a manner that sort of matches people to where they should send out. And I wasn't interested in doing that. I mean, I'm giving people information, but they have to figure out, okay, is this something I want to enter? Is this something that... Uh, my work would, people have to do that step. And often when mm-hmm. people send me thanks, I'm like, if it wasn't for you, I would have never been published. And I, I, I appreciate that, but my counter-argument is always, 
you know, I just gave you some information. You're the person who sat down in that seat or made that story, or you're the person who produced the art. All of us have people, I think, I hope, who have helped us along the way, who have pointed us in the right direction. I just gave you a nudge or let you know about something. You're the person who had the poem or the story or the essay. Uh, I don't want to take credit. A lot of people have given me a lot of credit for this, and I enjoy doing it. And, and when it ceases to be enjoyable, I'll stop doing it. But I really do like knowing that people have this information. And I make mistakes from time to time, so that happens too. But <laughs> it really is just taking, taking one step out of that process for people. But they still have Aww, to figure out, oh, so okay. Nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think you this is where my work place. might fit. I think you should get like a group uh, 300-person hug for that answer. <laughs> that was so modest. I mean, really, it's very generous what you're doing, and uh, I'm sure just people must be so grateful. Um, I wanted to ask you to um, – I have a couple of questions in closing, but I know one thing that a lot of people probably wonder, speaking of Facebook, um, you two are so incredibly – supportive of each other um, publicly and on Facebook, which is just wonderful. And I'm kind of wondering behind the scenes, like, how do you guys, I just feel like you guys must be supporting each other so much in these creative ways to help each other write. And I know, Allison, with you encouraging John to get his work out there and posting that he's got these books, and then I'll meet Kay writing. I mean, there are things that we see, but what do we not see? that you two are doing that's making the writing life possible for each other? Well, I mean, this is going to sound harsh, but by not giving each other children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really (laughs) admire writers who are parents, but we couldn't live the life we do. We travel a lot. We go speak to people. And if there were a little little Allison or a little John, um, one of us would have to have sacrificed. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I I feel out of step with other women my age because, and I'll tell you this this story. I was giving a reading at uh, Central Methodist University, which is in Fayette, Missouri, and I'd been there before, um, so I was familiar with the campus, and I'd given a reading there before, and I was there this past February, and I was in the bookstore, and the person, the bookstore manager, said. Oh, hi, what are you here for? Do you have a son or a daughter who's considering Central? And for a half a minute, I thought, oh, my God, I have a 17-year-old child I totally forgot to raise. (laughs) Oh, my God, where's my kid? Uh, But sort of that emotion of, you know, there are some things that we decided not to include in our lives, and that gave Mm -hmm. us the ability to do all these other things. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is also knowing when one of us is caught up in a project and needs to talk it out, you don't change the subject. Mm. You listen. Um, and I think that's been the downfall of some writer couples that we've known, where the one person is a writer and the other person isn't, and the other person gets tired of hearing about whatever project is happening. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's not an easy thing because that's not just honey did you take out the trash it's 
I have this poem and I want to write about something <laughs> really particular and listen. So that's part of it. But what do you say, John? Well, um, yeah, the thing I think that um, that we, of course, spend a lot of time working together as well, I think that's the thing that... Uh, that more than anything else surprises people that uh, that we're able to to do what we do as work. Um, some years ago, when our founding editor for Crab Orchard Review retired, um, people assumed that I would become the editor. But one, I'm not faculty. Um, I actually am my job. I am the managing editor of Crab Orchard Review, and so I said, no, it should not be me. It should be Allison. And they were like, you're going to work for your wife? And I said, yes, I'm <laughs> going to work for my wife. Um, I said, I've, and I had actually done that before when she edited Indiana Review. I was her business manager. So I knew I could do it. And uh, I just knew that in this capacity, it was it was the best thing overall for the magazine and that she would be a, a wonderful person to to have to answer to. So, um, um, and it's it works great. I mean, there are times where we get tired of of the work um, at times, and we're both will recognize with deadlines that we might have to push on and uh, and make some things happen, and we'll get grumpy. But uh, but it never, I mean, it's never a problem, and it never lasts. So um, because we enjoy what we're doing and uh, and love doing it together. Mhm. Mm, that's wonderful. Um, and do you have something that you love doing together outside of the literary world, like ballroom dancing, or you know, something? To get away from it <laughs> no, all? we are not. We are not Rita Dove and Fred Vibon. <laughs> no, but we do enjoy. Oh, we enjoy right. good they meals like together all the time. Um, I think that okay. uh, that that that's one thing that we will always make time for. Is, and we we like travel. I mean, you'll see, anybody who's Facebook friends with either of us will see us in, in sort of wonderful settings. I always get these pictures of John by water because we're, dra- <laughs> we're, you know, we're drawn to wherever it is we see that's kind of off the beaten track and often those things involve... Since we live in Illinois, which is such a weird state, we don't live in what most people know. We don't live in Chicago. We don't live in Chicago land. Uh, we know it. We're getting to know it. It's it's kind of impossible to know entirely. But um, so there's a lot of strange and wonderful things down in the bottom of the state, and we've been to quite a few of them. And I know we're going to go to more of them, but. Crab Orchard Review is named after the Crab Orchard National Wildlife Refuge, which is about 12 miles from ah. our campus. And oh, people cool. people from around the world come to that. Um, we also live in the intersection of a couple of states. Uh, if we go about 45 minutes, we're in Missouri. If we go 45 to minutes to an hour the other way, we're in Kentucky. So where we are is a really interesting place to sort of view the country from. It's sort of the most flyover of flyover places. <laughs> but we can look down and uh, there's the American South. We are three hours from Memphis. We look up and there's Chicago and Minneapolis and 
Milwaukee and Madison. So we're, we kind of have this interesting, intriguing, weird little hideout place where we live, but we love going on road trips and seeing interesting and strange pieces. Of, both of us studied history to some extent in college, so we're both really interested in in things that have historical value. Mm, so yeah, that often, doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> so, yeah, and, I mean, and one other that thing that we really enjoy sharing is music. Um, so mm. just we both have have pretty wide tastes and uh, and just love a lot of different types of music and uh, and so when we're traveling that can be part of it as well and uh, and and when we get a chance I mean, we really have enjoyed some concerts together and things so so right. that that would definitely be a part of it as well well, I'm so happy to hear that y'all don't work 24-7. <laughs> it's very good to know. <laughs> um, okay, so um, what are each of you working on right now? And just in closing, I'd like to know what each of you are working on. And also, we we know about John's book that's forthcoming, but what else um, is forthcoming that either one of you is excited about, any readings or conferences or just anything you'd like to share with us? Close. John, you want to talk about the chicken book? Uh, I guess I could talk about the chicken book. Um, <laughs> I have just completed a manuscript that focuses on uh, two and a half years of my life when I was a teenager uh, working for Kentucky Fried Chicken. And the entire book is about that. Um, there were actually uh, four poems from it, um, published not long ago online in Atticus Review, and and I also did a little Q&A on what, why I was writing these, um, and uh, I guess earlier a couple of forms were published in The Account, um, and also a little piece that I wrote on writing about labor, um, but they're very much focused on the work. Um, they're not really... Wow about the times, they're about the timelessness of the type of work that I was doing and um and the cost of the labor. Um and mm-hmm. it is uh, it it can be pretty brutal. And so um so I've just completed that and kind of catching my breath from it because it was certainly the most cathartic writing I had ever done. Um, I wrote a lot of poems toward the end of working on the project that were about um, pain, both personal pain and uh, and pain of other people that I worked with, and those were tough. Wow, that sounds great. And did I did I miss it? Did you mention the title? By any uh, the title of the the manuscript right now that I've. Uh, is God of the Kitchen um, because of, a, of the um, a vision that I had of a certain thing that kind of rose out of the friars that uh, that becomes the God of the Kitchen. It's kind of a nightmarish thing. So, um, hmm. but it's a great um, title, though. So, but yeah, it um, and and it does also look some at specifically Kentucky Fried Chicken and and Colonel Sanders and kind of what both the reality and the the myth around around the man was. So, um, mm-hmm. so 
um, but it was a it was definitely an interesting project to 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 work on, and uh, I'll see what comes of it. Well, great, great. I'm sure we all are looking forward to seeing what comes of that. Um, and Allison, how about you? Well, in 2014 and 2015, I published two chapbooks with two micropresses, and now I'm circulating two more. So I'm saying that my chapbook trilogy has now become a chapbook tetralogy, <laughs> and I really like the shorter forms. Uh, I love full-length books of poetry, but I like the chapbooks for concentrating me on a certain set of beliefs or something I'm investigating even more than a full-length book was or does. Mm -hmm. So one's called Multitudes, and it's about all the things that women can be. And the other Mm -hmm. is called Bear, Bear as in B-A-R-E. It's about uh, the vulnerabilities of being alive. Wow. I'm circulating those, and hopefully they'll be picked up for publication sometime soon. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm just hoping that people will react to them the way they've reacted to the two recent chapbooks, which has been positive. And I'm also interested. I'm interested in in people who are sort of deciding. You know, I want to publish books. I'm not necessarily affiliated with a college or university. I just want to read something, and I want to put it out there. Both of the micropresses I've worked with, Backbone, which is at backbonepress.org, and Imaginary Friend Press, which is at imaginaryfriendpress.com. They're both uh, run by poets uh, who just decided, hey, this is you know something I want to do. And <laughs> That's great. I've, never, I've actually never met... Uh, my publisher for Backbone, I met um, at AWP, met Dan Nowak, who is the publisher and editor for Imaginary Friend Press. And isn't this a great way to establish relationships with people? It is. It is. It's really wonderful. Well, uh, thank you both so much for tonight. It's just been really a delight talking to the two of you. And uh, I wish you both just the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to thank producer and associate editor R.J. Jeffries, contributing editor and associate producer Udo Hinks, and publisher Donna Berestein for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. I'd like to also remind our listeners that at our website, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of the Ferret Journal, and find out about upcoming events. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of Teferit Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as the website. For details about our next interview, please visit the Teferit website. We hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work.